You are listening to the Critical Mass Radio Show, Orange County's business talk show focused on exploring topics of interest to CEOs who are leading middle market companies with your host, Richard Franzi. And welcome to this edition of Critical Mass Radio Show and Podcast. I am your host, Richard Franzi. This is podcast episode number 1106. Juiced up but also more fragile is the headline from the Spring Economic Outlook and Forecast. Dr. Mira Farka is back on the show to provide her insights into what we can expect from the U.S. and Orange County economies. Mira, welcome back to Critical Mass Radio Show. Thank you, Rick. It's always a pleasure to be here with you. Yeah, I'm excited. Loved reading the Cal State Fullerton Economic Outlook and Forecast, Spring 2018. And so let's start very simply. In your outlook, you suggest that the U.S. and global recovery will continue through 2018 and probably into 2019. What is the basis for your outlook? Right. So, in fact, uh, uh, even in our economic forecast uh, conference, we made the point that uh, this is perhaps the most optimistic we've been about the U.S. economy, but also global economy in general. And there are many factors that make us think that the next couple of years will probably be a bit better, uh, actually a lot better than what we've seen over the last almost nine years of the ongoing recovery. And in a sense, there's sort of like three main reasons why we think, or three main factors why we think that that's the case. The first thing is the fundamentals in the U.S. are very strong. Um, you know, we have uh, business investment are going to sort of amp up the recovery, we think. Uh, there is almost a, a return of the animal spirits that we see on the business world. Uh, consumers are doing very well. We've got uh, increased home valuations. We've got stock market, va- you know, record stock market valuations, at least so since early this year. Uh, we also have continued improvement in um, uh, sort of uh, reba- the balance sheets for the consumers. So uh, labor market is doing very well. So we've got a very strong fundamental. So this sort of like paints the broader base picture for our positive outlook, the first factor. Uh, the second factor that we think is important is also the global economy. Global economy is in a much better place now that it's been really since 2010, since the beginning of this recovery. Europe seems to be a little bit out of the woods. I mean, you know, barring Italian elections and the recent government that was uh, formed this weekend, but certainly the rest of Europe seems to have also improved tremendously and they're doing very well business investments are up consumer spending is up unemployment rate is down in europe china concerns are also in the back burner so the global economy seems to be in a better place and the third reason why we think that this is going to kind of boost uh, the recovery going forward and in fact kind of juice it up which is the term that we used in our forecast is uh the policy environment we've seen A lot of positive, sort of a business-friendly, pro-growth policy environment, uh, especially last year, year and a half. And this goes not only for the new tax law, which we think will really boost business investment with a drop in corporate tax rate uh, to about 21% from 35%, but certainly we think it's going to actually, the, the recent spending bill that just passed Congress, uh, in, in March, we'll also uh, amp up spending over the next couple of years, and more importantly, the regulatory environment also seems to be very, very positive. So these three main factors make us more optimistic in the future. 
Right, and what we're talking about, we're talking with Dr. Mira Farka. Um, we're talking about kind of the next couple of years, because a little bit later in the uh, interview, I want to ask you about sort of federal debt and deficits. But before we sure. get there, uh, you describe in your forecast the the trade tariffs that have been recently imposed on China. You describe them as a rather blunt tool. But you suggest that they and the NAFTA renegotiations may result in a freer and fairer trade. So I have to tell you, I've been reading your reports for years. You're right. This is one of the most optimistic reports that I've ever read that's come out of your organization. But anyway, can you expand on your thinking as to how these two issues, NAFTA renegotiations and the trade tariff threats, might end up in a freer and fairer trade environment? Sure, and, and you're right. I mean, this is uh, we surprised ourselves. Uh, we were the most optimistic we've been, and finally, I mean, I almost feel good about it. Finally, we have some good news for your listeners and our followers. Um, and we think, I mean, if our baseline scenario holds, uh, we're, we're clear at least for the next couple of years that this, we're going to see sort of a more juiced up uh, economy. Now, you mentioned trade, which is a very important factor, and trade has been very important, especially in moving the stock market since, really, since mid-February, but really since March 1st when the tariffs were, uh, uh, were announced. Actually, we started in January with uh, tariffs on uh, washing machines and solar panels, which mostly were aimed at China and South Korea, but then we moved on to steel and aluminum, and later on more directly to China. So uh, let me... To us, trade, this trade, this back and forth on trade and tariffs are, is also a big risk to our forecast. So if there's anything that may go wrong, trade could be it. That could potentially snuff the life out of this recovery a bit sooner than what our baseline scenario says. So it's certainly a risk as well. But we also consider it as an opportunity. We do think that, for example, the trade tar- the tariffs that were placed on steel and aluminum earlier this year were certainly indiscriminate and not smart. Uh, they were sort of placed ad hoc. Uh, the announcement was done ad hoc. Uh, then, then things got better. I mean, if you, if you kind of pay attention, the administration took it back and refined them, and they've, getting a lot of, they've given out a lot of exemptions. So that's one thing that we don't want to see done. I mean, something that is not, sort of half-baked and not well thought out, that certainly is a risk. But we take a little bit of exception when it comes to trade um, tariffs with China because we do think that there's a lot more we can get uh, from negotiations with China that would actually help us in the long term. I mean, let's face it, uh, China has actually been an, an habitual line stepper, but mostly for things like intellectual property. I mean, they have strong-arm companies who want to have access to Chinese markets to be able to hand over intellectual property. Um, they have their 2025 um, initiative, right, to build an industri- industrialized China with a global reach. And certainly, uh, a lot of these are not in agreement with the WTO. So uh, there is broad sort of scope for improvement there. And I think negotiations will lead to a better outcome. At least this is our baseline scenario. Of course, there is risk. But the baseline scenario is that there is broad agreement we can reach with China that would help them, but also, of course, us in the long run, especially dealing with thornier issues like intellectual property and things of that nature. And you also write that it's probably appropriate to do some level of NAFTA renegotiation because it really hasn't been revised in the two-plus decades since it was been implemented. Sure. I mean, uh, it's been a, qu- it's a quarter of century old sort of a, a negotiation. Things that are 
Gorilla Dig these days didn't even exist. E-commerce wasn't even, <laughs> it was fledging back then. I mean, so we, we uh, cross border, there's a, a bunch of uh, laws that need to be updated, even just to make the, the crossing of the borders of many goods a lot easier. So you can think of uh, any pack that is 25-year-old uh, can uh, sustain a facelift or a modernization to that extent. So we view this, now of course there's a high risk of things going wrong, and that's certainly trade is one of our main risks of our forecasts, and we spelled this out in the report as well as in the conference that we had. Um, but we also view it as a big opportunity to lead us to fairer and freer trade, actually. So that's, that's we're taking more of a benign outlook only because the stakes are so high, both for China, for example, and the U.S., but also for Mexico and Canada, that uh, we don't see a trade war breaking out partially because it's also, in, in big part, this is not in our interest as well. It's not in our commercial interest. Right. So I think we're, while a lot of the rhetoric you hear, we consider right now as a rhetoric, as a negotiating tactic, we think they're sort of a means, not an end. So that's we're taking a more benign outlook and sort of a wait-and-see approach to see whether uh, trade wars could potentially escalate. As I mentioned, this is not our baseline scenario. Let's talk about what I think is a real threat. And you do deal with it a bit in the report because you write that the real threat, the long-term growth, not the next two years when the economy's been juiced by these things that you've already talked about, but the fact that the federal debt and deficits are a a real long-term threat to growth. You know, there's little political will in in the capital to address deficits. So what is your organization's outlook for when the national debt will actually make a real negative impact on our economic outlook and maybe cause our politicians to face into dealing with some very unpleasant issues. You're absolutely right. I mean, longer-term threats, the the biggest threat longer-term certainly is the federal debt and federal deficit. And we're not the only one to say this. People are aware of it. It's just it's not in anybody's radar at the moment. It's funny because it's interesting. We do have a LCBX index, which I believe we'll talk a little bit later, for the Orange County. And one question that we ask there all the time is, you know, what do you think is the biggest threat to the U.S. economy? These are questions that we repeat, you know, year in and every every quarter. And very few, only 3% of the CEOs from from, uh, Orange County are concerned about the federal deficit. It's not that they don't know that it's a big uh, is big, is getting bigger, and it's going to pose a threat. Is that they don't consider it as an immediate threat. And the problem with debt is, I like to quote uh, Reagan on this when he says, "Well, I'm not worried about deficits. It's too big. It's big enough to take care of itself." Mm. <laughs> so I think uh, I think we're almost there. I think our deficits are way too big that eventually we're going to have to deal with them. Uh, I think we're not. I don't expect anything to be done over the forecast horizon. Our forecast horizon is two to three years. I don't think anybody wants to touch it. I think we still have some scope. We do have a little bit of time. We're lucky in that sense. We're not Greece. We're not one of those peripheral European countries which are kind of faced uh, very much with the threat of uh, uh, federal debt and, 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 and deficits. We have a bit of scope, and we actually know what we needs to get done. Um, I think we're going to find the political will only when eventually we get to the point of uh, – being unsustainable any longer. I mean, we're going to get, uh, federal deficit is is, blo- is going to balloon to about a trillion, over a trillion dollars in 2019. 
this is a bit sooner than what we had anticipated before, but because of the new tax law and the omnibus, omnibus bill that was just passed, we, we, I mean, our earlier estimates were for this to happen in 2021. Now it's going to happen in 2019. So all of this big spending, sort of big tax cuts, kind of brought forward a bit the day of reckoning, probably by a couple of years. But we're not there yet, and we don't see this happening until probably mid-2020s or so. So kind of in the, in the middle of the next decade, we think politicians will have to come down and deal with uh, this threat, which is really big. And it's going to be problematic. Uh, my worry is that if we wait that long, we're going to have fewer and fewer options. Right. So you're going to have to tell people to delay their retirement when they've made life, lifelong decisions, life cycle decisions based on those uh, retirement and those funding. Exactly. So that's the biggest threat longer term. So you heard it here first on Critical Mass Radio Show and Podcast. Dr. Mira Fark is admonishing us to worry about deficits and the national debt Unfortunately, probably in a few years, you and I will be back on this show and you'll be talking about how the day of reckoning has come. But before that, we're going to take a short break. When we come back, I'm excited because I want to talk to you about labor force participation rates. Usually this has been a thorny, systemic problem, and there are some bright spots even in this metric in your report. So can we talk about that when you come back, Mira? Absolutely. All right, ladies and gentlemen, don't go anywhere. The next part's going to be really good after this word from me. Best-selling author Richard Franzi's written what Marshall Goldsmith has called an incredibly poignant foray into the realm of unintended consequences of executives' decisions. In Killing Cats Leads to Rats, Mitigating the Unintended Consequences of Business Decisions, Richard Franzi takes a close look at the impact of unintended consequences on business performance and employee engagement. Through the retelling of the experiences of executives at Pepsi, Wells Fargo, Kodak, Volkswagen, and many others, Richard paints a compelling real-world account for how executives leading firms of all sizes must do a better job of anticipating and controlling the outcomes of their strategic business decisions. Killing Cats Leads to Rats is available through major bookstores in paperback, Kindle, and audiobook formats. To learn more, visit www.richardfranzi.com. And welcome back to this edition of Critical Mass Radio Show and Podcast. I'm not going to do my normal intro because there's so much content I want to get through with Dr. Farka. I want to get right to the next question. So before the break, I said... You write that the labor force participation participation rate has picked up. The biggest gains are in prime-aged women, but prime-age particip- participation rates for men is going up as well. And as we've discussed here in the past, uh, prime-aged, less educated, and less skilled male workers were a cohort that was under a lot of pressure. But you've actually seen that pick up a little bit. Could, what is this trend telling you, and what could it mean for that, that cohort at, if it continues, Mira? I think it's great news, but I also think we have to be a bit careful about reading too much into this. Um, the prime age uh, participation rate has gone up for both men and women, but significantly so for women. That's because, and this is mostly if you break it down, it's interesting to break it down by education level. If you break it down by education levels, uh, prime age women who are actually less 
without a college education, uh, usually either high school or some college education are doing the best. And it's because there's a lot of clerical jobs, um, especially in the, in the medical field, that they're filling in. So it's been a great market for the lower-educated women. Now, the same thing actually goes for prime-age men. Uh, lower education, so we, men with sort of a high school diploma are doing better. That's because some of the manufacturing jobs that's picked up and so have construction jobs, for example. So that's where we're seeing some of the, uh, uh, some of the positions getting filled, which is great news because these demographics were the ones that were hurt the most where we saw significant decline in labor force participation rates. So these are great trends. Now, while I'm more optimistic about uh, prime-age women with lower education continuing this trend, uh, I think we should be a little bit careful. I mean, it's great news that we see also the same trend for men, uh, prime-age men, those between 25 and 50 or 4 years old, but we have to be a bit careful about how sustainable that is. Um, we've been seeing increasing in manufacturing jobs and be seen increasing in uh, construction jobs. But again, we have to, uh, my sense is that these jobs still have a cap, have a ceiling. Mm -hmm. And when all is said and done, we're still going to be probably left with a, bun with a, with a large number of men. Now, we have now about anywhere between three to five million. Wow. Uh, once this cycle is over, we'll still think we're going to have a few, a couple of million um, men, prime age men that are still left without a, uh, a marketable skill, at least not without a job. And that's because, again, part of this has to do with technological improvement and trade. Uh, and a lot of the jobs that have, you know, that, that uh, these prime age men have been losing have been displaced by technology and productivity gains. Yeah, and they're not, they're not coming back. But um, right. th th we have never had a, uh, a positive outlook on this, and it was just great to read in this latest report by Cal State Fullerton Economic Outlook and Forecast that even that demographic was showing some improvement. So that was really very optimistic. Another um, subtlety that I read in your report that I wanted to highlight here is the historical highs for business optimism, and you forecast continued strength in fixed investment. And I'm not excited about that because I believe fixed investment has a downstream impact, kind of a trickle through the economy right. kind of perspective. So can you elaborate on the potential downstream effects if spending in the fixed investment continues at the rates you forecast? Yes, I mean, it's, uh, uh, it's great news. I think uh, business investment are going to pick up not necessarily simply because of the new tax law, but because we really have, we really see genuine improvement in fundamentals. Uh, it's true that we've also had quite a little bit of a, a, a setback when it comes to uh, investment in equipment, when it comes to investment in structures. Structures have a slightly different story because some of them has to do with the fact that the energy sector went through a what I would call a recessionary period, really, since mid-2014 until pretty much uh, early 2017, early last year. And that's because of the collapse of oil prices. Really, uh, we saw a, um, I mean, a halting of wealth, uh, mining, and all these uh, big rig structures that really came to a screeching halt. But that has come back now, especially with higher oil prices. So we do think there are many reasons why business fixed investment will actually pick up. And this will have huge repercussions. It's great news because it will have, as you mentioned, downstream effects. Some of this has to do, and we've seen this, some of the bigger companies are paying back uh, wage. I mean, they're giving higher bonuses, bigger bonuses at the end of last year, early this year. 
Uh, we do think eventually we'll, we will see some wage increases. We've seen some of it this year. We don't think we're there yet. We're probably going to wage raises are probably going to ramp up towards the end of this year. That's because the labor market is really tight. I mean, uh, interesting to see both in the national level and in the Orange County level at more regional level. The biggest concern the business has uh, these days is not government regulation or taxes, which are usually top of their list. It's labor quality, and they're unable to fill in their positions with the wages they're offering. So we do think that wages are going to pick up. You're running out of people, so the labor market is getting tighter. And getting qualified workers, you just need to entice them from other places. And you do so by offering higher wages and higher benefits. So, again, we do see this kind of a ramping up in a positive way, this up cycle, where more business investment, uh, uh, higher profits, and so on, will actually translate eventually into higher wages and more income, more uh, disposable income for consumers. So people that are loyal listeners to the show that have heard me interview you twice a year for I don't even know how many years, probably are pinching themselves going, is this the same Mira Farka that we've been listening to? Where, where is the bad news? Or at least, you know, in economics, everything has an equal and opposite opportunity. But let's look at Orange County, because your report highlights growing problems in Orange County. And one of them that I, that I, you know, I'm not looking to find a problem, but something that I think we're faced with here in the county, which is that of homelessness. You know, what is the economic implications for a county of our size for not devising a viable solution to the problem of homelessness across our county? Oh, it's huge. I mean, it will have longer-term social effects, of course, uh, uh, not just in the it's the social demographics of the county. I mean, it, it does matter. And I think the problem is that it's not that I, I don't think the I don't think we're, we're lacking the will. I, I just think the problem itself is very difficult and very intractable. But we do have a few things that we could do. I mean, even Los Angeles County, although for all their pro, for for all their uh, uh, the program they're putting up there, each program has an equal has a number of issues that comes with it. Mm. Uh, but at least they're trying to find a solution. Seattle, of course, was in the news yesterday uh, because they're actually imposing a tax on the biggest uh, companies, those with $20 million in revenues and more, uh, to basically solve the problem of homelessness. Now, again, all of this, none of these solutions are easy. And I actually have my own objections to each and every one of them. But certainly something has to be done. And, of course, a lot of that has to do with the fact that, you know, we have uh, too few affordable housing. Uh, and, of course, I mean, the, we all know that we live in a very expensive area. I mean, home prices have been, are now above their pre-crisis peak. We've actually gone earlier this year. We, uh, we're above water compared to April 2006, which was the highest uh, value, home valuation we reached prior to during the housing boom. So certainly it's not a cheap county to live in. There's no easy answers. That's one thing that people have to understand. But having said that, having no easy answers is not a solution for not having any answers at all. Right. Uh, and I think we have to do a good study across for different cities, like Houston, New York has had the same problem, Los Angeles, perhaps Seattle. Again, I have my own problems or my own issues with solutions that are provided in L.A. and in Seattle. But certainly we can see... We can do a case analysis of what works and what doesn't work and what are the most cost-effective but also economically viable ways to address the problem of homelessness. And certainly is going to be a problem um, that will remain with us if we do nothing. Yeah, so we're kind of, we hit two what seem to be intractable problems. Here in Orange County, it's homelessness, and in the country, it's these 
huge deficits that just compound the debt, and this requires really private-public cooperation and some type of leadership on all fronts. So um, we don't have time to dig into that any more than just for me to say that. But I did want to highlight and maybe ask you to explain, because you did mention it, the OCBX in index. And uh, if you could just categorize for people what it is, because I'd like to see people participate, especially those here in Orange County. But also, what were the summary findings of your most recent index? So the index, so the OCBX index is the Orange County uh, uh, business uh, sentiment index that we collect every quarter. We we have about anywhere between 700 and 750 CEOs from Orange County filling in a survey. We're really appreciative to all to all of them who do uh, give us uh, their opinion about where they see the U.S. economy going, where they see their own businesses going, and we ask questions as varied as: Are you planning to hire more people? Are you planning to invest more and luckily i mean we have you know the the past few quarters in a sense ocbx has gotten better and better um we do notice that uh, the vast majority i believe last time we did the index which is the second quarter data basically everyone only three percent said they're going to shrink employment or shrink investment really 97 percent either they're about 48 percent said they're going to hire more 54% they're going to invest more, and the rest of they're going to be unchanged. So this certainly bodes well for uh, both investments and for hiring uh, in the in the county. We also have a number of other uh, questions that we ask. So what do you think is the biggest threat to the economy? And as we would expect, and we didn't elaborate uh, on this, we talked about a longer-term threat, which is the federal deficit and the debt. But short-term threat, other than trade, depending how trade negotiations fare, we do think, of course, monetary policy by the Fed. Uh, how that? Because again, we're moving on to a ultra-low interest rates to a new regime, which is high interest rates, higher inflation, stronger growth, and that certainly will have repercussions in the market and for the U.S. economy. So, how fast the Fed will fi- will uh, increase interest rates is is another concern. And businesses in Orange County has hi- have highlighted that over the last few quarters, they seem to be their number one short-term concern is. Fed policy. Interestingly, last quarter, uh, uh, towards the end of last year in 2017, the worry was about North Korea. Only about 5% of business executives are worried about North Korea in our latest survey, which is for obvious reasons. We have moved, uh, the, the administration is uh, moving towards having a negotiating summit with uh, Kim Jong un. So we saw that as well. But it's interesting to see how uh, federal debt is not a concern for business executives, not because they're not aware of it. I think everybody is. I think they believe, as, as do we, that we have a bit of time, but I don't, I'm a bit concerned about the fact that we don't have an urgency yes. to get there faster, because I think the longer we wait, the shorter we'll have an option. We'll be short of options, as I mentioned earlier. Yeah, it'll have to be a crisis before we can deal with it, because the political will doesn't exist to deal with it while it's not a crisis. In my opinion, surely my opinion. (laughs) Dr. Farka, (laughs) as always, you continue to illuminate what are complex ideas with clarity, and I truly look forward to your repeated appearances here on Critical Mass Radio Show and Podcast. If someone would like to learn more about the Wood Center and your reports, where would you suggest they go online to learn more? 
So we have our own uh, center online, uh, and the address is a little bit convoluted, but uh, it's business, so HTTPS business.fullerton.edu. Uh, forward slash center, forward slash economic analysis and forecasting. So it's a little bit long, but if or if you simply Google, it makes it easier. Google <laughs> Wood Center for Economic Analysis. You'll get you right to our webpage. You can see our report for free, a number of other reports, OCBX Index, uh, the Southern California Leading Indicator, a few flagship publications from our Wood Center, uh, as well as analysis about uh, other analysis like international trade forecasts, which we do for the region and the county in specific, and so on. So uh, certainly we have a presence online. We look forward to more of your listeners. Email us with any questions they would have. We'd be more than happy to respond. Thank you for being a continued friend of the program, a valuable part of our community, and continue the outstanding work that you're doing both at Cal State Fullerton and the Wood Center. Thank you, Mira. I appreciate your time today. Thanks so much, Rick. It's always a pleasure to be in your show. Thank right. you. Bye-bye. And I'd like to thank our engineer, Paul Roberts, our producers without whom we wouldn't be able to do this show, Joan Park, Crystal Nunley, and Haley Stern. If you'd like to connect with me, go to LinkedIn and type in Richard Franzi, F-R-A-N-Z-I. Until our next show, I hope all of your business decisions will move your company in a positive direction. You have been listening to Critical Mass Radio Show Business Talk Show focused on exploring topics of interest to CEOs who are leading middle market companies with your host, Richard Franzi. 